Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. Here, Ella Manuel recalls a visit to Newfoundland nearly 200 years ago of an American ship loaded with dignitaries come to sea what was to have been the laying of the first underwater cable to Nova Scotia. This story is called Yankees in the Kingdom of Cod. In 1855, a little book entitled A Trip to Newfoundland, Its Scenery and Fisheries, with an account of the laying of the submarine cable, was published in New York. Illustrated with elegant steel engravings, it was the work of one John Mullally. He had set out from New York in the steamship James Adger with a glorious company, including Cyrus Field, Samuel Morse of Morse Code fame, several reverends, a fair sprinkling of ladies, a doctor, and some other gentlemen with distinguished names and great wealth. Their object was to visit the shores of Newfoundland and to witness the laying of the first submarine cable from Cape Ray to Cape Breton. They first sighted the island as a dark cloud on the horizon near Port Abbas. Their pilot described the place as nothing but bog and rock, sprinkled with deep holes and quagmires. But the majestic hills towering over the ocean, huge masses of rock lining the coast, and the restless sea breaking in foam at their feet created a scene that even bogs and quagmires could not spoil. And as they approached land, the pilot told them a strange story, which I've never been able to find anywhere else. And this is the story he told. When the revolution of 1789 swept over France, scattering its noble families like leaves in the wind, there came to Port Basque a Frenchman with his wife and little daughter. What induced them to come to this inhospitable shore nobody could think, for Monsieur de Saint-Maur could neither fish nor mend nets nor build a boat and as far as the inhabitants could see, he was supremely ignorant and supremely useless. As time went on, the Samara family charmed the village. The child was lovely and graceful, and her parents were kind and thoughtful. In the evenings, the villagers would sit on the beach and listen to tales of their homeland, as they relived the days of grandeur and pomp of the French court, of lords and ladies. The mother soon died and the father lived only long enough to entrust his little girl to another Frenchman who had also come to live there. With him, Adele grew up in a humble cottage by the sea, her quiet life broken only by the excitement of the fishing boats coming home. One fine, calm morning, sunlit out on the water, a light breeze, the fleet of boats put out to sea as Adele sat watching until they disappeared. But by afternoon there were massive great clouds and the wind was shrieking off the coast. As night fell, the storm increased, and in the darkness they heard a signal gun, the passing bell of an ill-fated vessel. 
It was impossible to get to her, and anyhow there were no men left in the village. The vessel went to pieces off the jagged shore. Two men were washed ashore, alive, but only just. Adele and her guardian took them in and helped them to recover, long after everyone else had given them up for dead. The rest is like a fairy tale. These two men were father and son from a noble French family, the father a distinguished diplomat on a foreign mission, the son an officer in Napoleon's army. Hey, you can imagine what happened next, for as John Mullally wrote, Not many weeks after the wreck there were tears and lamentations throughout the village, for Adele, the St. Maur, the Rose of the Seaside, the Pride of Portobasque, became the bride of the French officer, and accompanied by her faithful guardian, sailed for the land of her birth. I wonder if her French descendants ever remember this lovely story. Well, back to the story of our Yankee visitors. The passengers from the James Adgar gladly headed for shore. After a perilous trip of half a mile, during which the dory was nearly capsized by one of the heavy passengers who persisted in sitting at the side instead of the middle of the boat, they reached a rough wooden ladder attached to the rocks. Clambering up, they found themselves at the village of Channel, which then consisted of forty to fifty scattered frame houses. The first inhabitant they met, a rough weather-beaten fisherman, was glued to the spot with astonishment at the sight. They asked him, uh, Well, what's the population of this place? Eh, what? he said, after a pause during which he surveyed his curious visitors long enough to count the buttons of their jackets. Well, how many people live here? they asked. Well, they ain't all home now. Well, well, cannot you tell us their number, either two or three hundred? Oh, he replied nonchalantly, there's a great many. Well, where are they all? someone asked, looking towards the deserted houses. Well, they're all out, was the fisherman's short reply. Mullally writes that the local men had a frank, good-natured expression that at once gained your confidence, but information upon every subject except codfishing is most limited. What do you do here? they inquired of another man. Well, we're all fishermen. We all catch as cod. All of us excepting two merchants. And what do they do? Well, they buy cod from us. They're their stacks, pointing to a nearby heap of codfish. And and what do you live on chiefly? Well, cod, of course. And that brief encounter established the Channel Fisherman as a brother under the skin to every other fisherman. Later, Mullally and his friends made our way to the most respectable residence which belonged to a Mr. Waddle, the principal fish merchant in the village. We found him exceedingly courteous and desirous of doing all in his power to make our stay pleasant. Mr. Waddle's cook was a genius. Out of a dish of huge dimensions, he supplied the company with fish, meat, and fowl, and when we thought the stock exhausted, he put before our wandering eyes ham and eggs, boiled potatoes, and fried too. If an average of five or six cups of coffee is not doing justice to the meal, then we don't know the meaning of the term. To while away the hours, Mullally and thirteen of his New York friends decided to go hunting ten miles or so inland. One of them, a singular character, took with him a gun, a toothbrush, 
a bottle of perfume, and a pair of kid gloves to protect his hands from mosquitoes. They set out at one o'clock over a wilderness of rock and bog and stunted shrubbery, and no game to be seen. Of course they neglected to bring enough provisions with them, and were forced to spend a hungry night on the side of a hill. The next morning, sadder and wiser, they limped back to Portabasque. One man rushed with indecent haste to Mr. Waddle's store for crackers and cheese. Another grabbed a string of herring lying about on the ground and hastened to the lady of the house, who recognized them as long since dead and indignantly refused to cook them. I'm sure that the Portabasque and Channel people must have had many a hearty laugh at the antiques of these Yankees. Well, from Portabasque, the James Adger sailed along the south coast to St. John's. Two things struck the visitors about the city, the hospitality of the people and the enormous number of Newfoundland dogs. With one of them, they had an amusing encounter when its master swore the dog would wake him up any hour of the morning he was told, and if he doesn't get up immediately, the dog would promptly haul him out of bed. Well, this dog goes fishing just as natural as any human being. I'll tell you how he does it. He gets the line, and after he baits the hooks, he fashions one end on the shore and swims out some distance with the other, and then he drops it in the water. And when he's done this, he gets a piece of line in his mouth, and as soon as he feels the fish a-biting, he gives it a big jerk and then swims ashore with it. But how, the visitors wanted to know, did the dog get the hook out of the fish? Easy, said the St. John's man. He never lets the fish swallow the hook, prevents him from doing that by catching him on the first nibble. Now, if I was to tell you everything about my dog, you wouldn't believe me more than I was telling you a pack of lies. While they were in St. John's, the Edgar's party had heard so much about Portugal Cove that they decided to visit, by wagon hired from the Hotel de Paris. Beyond Twenty Mile Pond, which drew rapturous sighs from the travelers, a magnificent sight burst on their view. Mullally wrote that above us on either side of the road towered the mountains to a height of five or six hundred feet, their sides marked by deep seams and rugged with gigantic rocks that threatened every moment to fall and sweep like an avalanche upon us. The valley lay beneath in the verdure of summer, and at intervals immense boulders stood up amid woods of spruce and pine, their gray summits forming a contrast with the deep green of the foliage. And so, a hundred and fifty years ago or so, the beauty of our country fell on the hearts of travelers as it does today. But wait, what have we here? Covetousness, no less, for Mullally tells of a toast to the U.S. president given at a public dinner in St. John's, which brought such an ovation from the natives that he wrote, The day may not be too far distant that we'll see Newfoundland bound in closer connection with our republic than can be accomplished by the electric telegraph. And as to the laying of the cable, there were a great many problems, and the task had eventually to be abandoned. Mullally writes, While the excursion failed in its principal object to witness laying the cable, yet as a pleasure trip it was most successful. It acquainted us with a place little known, and so enriched our minds with a store of valuable recollections, and cheered us with the warmth of the friends we met in Newfoundland. 
That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late El Emanuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. Next week begins a new season called Ghosts and Dirty Tricks. 